I think uh, it can be it is cold in Rawalpindi and you you I I I believe I I read your tweet it was like uh, you have written that uh, uh, there is sermi in uh, Rawalpindi sardi plus garmi you call yes <laughs> but uh, here in Islamabad especially uh, since I uh, I'm sitting in this the sector that is close closer to the market oh um, there is this considerable uh, considerable uh, chill in the air i live in the hilly area as well so you know uh, mine is not that congested in area so uh, the buildings are not so close to each other it's quite an open hilly area so you really get the chills um, you know when i come back from the office and it's just uh, Uh, but the good thing is it's soup season so i think that's one of the plus points of uh, you know welcoming winters and then of course we have uh, reudi which is the local delicacy i i don't know how to translate that into english uh, i went to uh, uh, another city recently and on my way back i uh, passed through chakwal and uh, the reudi from chakwal that uh, sweet dish from Chak- chakwal is uh, extremely uh, delicious the pelwan ki reudi Palwan ki revdi, yeah, exactly. Yes, so I have the stock with me in case you're interested. I can uh, parcel it to you. Uh, sure, it's always welcome. So, yeah. and uh, I was just uh, uh, we were talking uh, behind the scenes before we started recording. You were mentioning about the crown, and interestingly, I've been watching it as well. What was your impression of season four? I think uh, overall. It, uh, I like the production, um, but they could have like uh, apart from all the all the happenings of the royal family, they could have uh, shed more uh, more light or dedicated some more time to uh, the uh, Falkland Wars. Uh, and uh, also, I was very much uh, interested in the happenings of. Uh, the commonwealth uh, the the, uh, the, more, uh, the dynamics basically the yes. whole aspect of uh, elizabeth's control i think you were focusing on that yes uh, the 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 dynamics between um, margaret thatcher and queen thatcherism yes yes thatcherism so how she was supposed to um, to this uh, application of sanctions on south africa and uh, the other commonwealth countries what was your impression of that scene because uh, at first i thought that uh, uh, queen elizabeth was genuinely interested in the humanitarian aspect of south africa but then i had this other assumption that maybe she was just trying to stick out in favor of the other uh, 48 countries who had uh, opposed south africa because her father the late king george had advised her to uh, support uh, the commonwealth majority at all costs 
So what was your impression? I thought that it, um, I was confused whether she was acting out of humanity in view of the apartheid or she was just uh, lending blind support to the majority of Commonwealth. For that, I think uh, we need to do, I personally need to do more research on the motivations that were, uh, that prompted her to uh, come in support of uh, the other countries of the Commonwealth. But I think there was this uh, humanitarian considerations played a role. In my opinion, humanitarian considerations were there uh, in that decision. It was not, it wasn't solely about politics. There was this, uh, humanitarian impulse, uh, especially uh, if you see how they have visualized, how they have visualized this, uh, uh, that time, they saw, uh, you can see, you can see these uh, protests going on in Britain. So I think that the producers wanted to give this impression that there was this uh, humanitarian uh, impulse, uh, this motivation that uh, that was that also factored in Elizabeth's decision uh, to go with what the other Commonwealth nations were um, were looking at. My, my overall um, my overall takeaway. I don't know about you, but uh, I found season four to be uh, too much of uh, focused on the relationship between. Um, Charles and Camilla and Diana as compared to something of substance because I particularly found season two to be the most uh, uh, season two to be the most uh, interesting the the Churchill period if I'm not mistaken yes, yes. Uh, that was very well produced because it focused on events also the Suez Canal event and all of that instead of the personalities uh, um, yes in, in fact uh, the, this except for the season four. Uh, the earlier seasons were too much invested into the politics of uh, Britain, depicting the politics of Britain. So that was a that was a learning experience for me. Uh, uh, after uh, Churchill, there are the prime ministers. I, I learned a lot from uh, from Crown, especially because you can like always go and refer to. Uh, the history books and that is what I do that is uh, I'm sure that is what you do but it is always uh, it, it, it feels more engaging and uh, when you don't have time recourse to uh, these productions uh, these uh, TV productions movies etc they yeah. they become quite immersive this they be, this is quite an immersive experience I, I believe the term is um, info infotainment. Infotainment, yes. Exactly. So, uh, so what's your first topic for uh, this episode, Talha? Okay, so uh, what I will be discussing uh, our first topic for this video session is the uh, appointment of certain uh, cabinet members by uh, President-elect Joe Biden. We, I'll be uh, focusing on the appointment of Anthony Blinken as the Secretary of State, what it portends for uh, Middle East 
and uh, South Asia in general. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll also uh, discuss uh, the the viewpoint of Michel Floney, the new Secretary of Defense. Uh, it's related to uh, hold this portfolio in Biden's administration. So, uh, Anthony Blinken, uh, deputy former uh, secretary during Obama's period. Uh, his views on Middle East uh, are uh, quite uh, uh, will be quite a departure from what we have uh, seen. We have seen politics under Trump. So uh, there is this thing that we, the commentators generally, to those who are studying, those who have studied Blinken's profile, they say that he will call for greater emphasis on uh, human rights in dealing with uh, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Even the aid that is given to Egypt can be partially tied to human rights and there will be a greater caution about uh, arms sales to uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, his appointment uh, will be reassuring for his friend. Uh, Blinken prefers dialogue with Israel on Palestinian rights rather than pressure tactics. Um, he also believes that uh, Israel uh, should have a qualitative military edge and he raised questions in the past, he raised questions about yeah. Uh, F-35 shipments to UAE. Exactly. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis Turkey, uh, they say that Blinken will be firm, but uh, he won't uh, risk uh, any major breakdown of US-Turkey relations. Uh, and uh, they have uh, given this example that uh, uh, Blinken hesitated to respond to Erdogan's Hagia uh, Sophia conversion. But uh, uh, with regards to uh, Turkey's politics in the Mediterranean region, Lincoln uh, is strongly opposed to how Turkey's, uh, Turkey's, Turkey's solution to the Cyprus problem. Uh, Erdogan has talked about uh, this two-state solution and Lincoln opposes that. Um, he will be more hawkish in Syria. Um, he supported military action in Assad in 2013. Yes. Um, there is a possibility that uh, if in case Syria uses chemical weapons again, this time there will be a very strong response because formerly uh, during Obama's time, there was this this too the too much criticism was leveled at uh, United States for its inaction, and this cannot be continued uh, uh, under Biden. So there will be a more uh, strong U.S. response uh, this time if Syria uh, goes into uh, the usage of any munitions that is prohibited uh, under international law. Um, but a regime change uh, mission is uh, will be unlikely. There is there there, there are no chances of that. 
Another thing, then we have Iran. Uh, Blinken will support uh, a return to Iran's nuclear deal. That's uh, going to be one of the major uh, uh, policy points for the incoming administration, Iran. Yes, especially in fact, all all the uh, all the discussions, all the analyses are being contextualized on Middle East, are being con contextualized on this point uh, by means administrations dealing with Iran. So, uh, joint comprehensive plan of action, how uh, it would, uh, how the things would progress. Uh, in fact, even Iran has is, is vocal has given this signal to these to this effect that uh, uh, they would uh, welcome the involvement of the United States again. Uh, they have uh, been very welcoming in the past few days. So now uh, done with the Middle East. Let's look at how Blinken uh, views India. So he was, uh, as as uh, Biden's campaign uh, chief uh, foreign policy official, um, he was uh, uh, he he was responsible. Blinken was responsible to uh, give the order of uh, the cong uh, congratulatory calls that were. Uh, coming from the rest of the world to President Lai. Uh, so he was responsible for setting the order. So, no. Lincoln, so quite interestingly, you see here that uh, Narendra Modi was amongst, amongst, the, uh, amongst the first leaders of uh, the uh, allied countries that uh, Biden called, along with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. This, this yes. is, I guess, this is reported in Washington Examiner. This point I uh, just uh, cherry picked from uh, this place. So, uh, on China, uh, Lincoln considers China as a common challenge. He takes oh. cognizance of China's aggression towards India and the line of actual control. And here, we see that uh, the 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 appointment uh, of Michelle Flournoy as the Secretary of Defense under Biden's administration. Uh, she also echoes a similar uh, similar viewpoint. We would come to that later. But uh, let's see how. The, let's just look at how Blinken's views India first. So uh, Blinken has uh, in the past the quote unquote these words are of Blinken's. Uh, we will be an advocate for India to play a leading role in international institutions, and that includes helping India get a seat uh, in, in in the reforming process, uh, get get a seat on the United Nations Security Council. We will work together to strengthen India's defense. It's 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 a it's a very uh, tall uh, claim coming from someone who is of uh, who is positioned to hold a very strong portfolio Indeed. Uh, under, the, under the new government. Uh, but still, uh, with regards to how Blinken views China, 
there is this uh, uh, there would be i believe there would be a departure from how the us has been uh, labeling china's counter radicalization efforts uh, there will be a market departure from uh, this prior uh, well, on china dealing with eagers uh, blinken has praised china's counter radicalization efforts uh, he and he has supported uh, beijing beijing's efforts and he has talked about it in uh, he has given some he talked about it in a in an interview in 2015 so uh, but the thing another thing is uh, another thing is that uh, Blinken will will be reluctant to militarize the South China Sea. Uh, 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 some uh, of the analysts who have uh, gone through Blinken's profile, they consider that uh, China will fare well uh, under Biden's administration, and. Uh, there, there is a chance that uh, uh, the Biden administration will uh, go back into the Obama era uh, appeasement mode vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. So this is uh, the uh, uh, sketch of how Blinken will be dealing with the world. But uh, Blinken's views on china are still uh, mellow when it uh, when we see them when we uh, uh, analyze them in contrast in contrast with uh, the views of the secretary defense uh, michel florian uh, in her piece for uh, ft she has uh, given an idea of uh, what Biden administration may mean for the Indo-Pacific. So, mm -hmm. so she has talked about how the Sino-Indian border dispute, and now these are Michelle Floney's words. She has talked about how the Sino-Indian border dispute underscores wider trends in the Indo-Pacific and should serve as a wake-up call for the region. And uh, she has uh, uh, talked about with the earlier it was said that china is violating the norm of freedom of navigation but michel floney has uh, widened the ambit she is saying that china she has said that china is also there are two other norms that china is violating uh, another uh, the second norm that china apart from the freedom of navigation uh, that is threatened by Chinese incursions. Uh, okay. The second norm that China is violating is the inviolability of borders. And the third uh, norm that China is violating is the norm of peaceful resolution of disputes. So, uh, Michel Froni has written that uh, this uh, dispute at Ladakh should serve as yet another wake up call to accelerate and deepen security cooperation among like-minded states. Uh, and uh, in a principle, it is a movement that demands 
U.S. leadership to convene and mobilize the region's democracies. And uh, it is a cherished legacy of sacrifices by the U.S., its allies and partners that can only be preserved if the region's democracies recognize and take steps to protect their common interest and value. But here uh, we, uh, we come back to this uh, uh, point again that uh, how uh, will, uh, the United, will the United States be able to mobilize the region's democracy? That is a big question mark. Uh, can it happen uh, or can it not happen? This is what uh, I have to present. This is my... Uh, if I may ask you a question related to because you've studied, you've been studying uh, the incoming administration, especially uh, Mr. Blinken and Ms. Florney. Um, it's a related question which just popped in my mind. Um, I was going to talk on it, so I'm going to incorporate in this particular segment. Uh, a few days ago, uh, the outgoing administration, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Michael Pompeo, he ordered the uh, removal of uh, East Turkestan Islamic Movement, erstwhile ETIM, which is nowadays known as the Turkestan Islamic Party, TIP. It is a terrorist and subversive organization uh, targeting Chinese interests within China and uh, overseas, including in areas of Pakistan. Uh, our, the Pakistan army has been successfully able to uh, eradicate the presence of uh, ETIM on its territory and uh, they're still actively regrouping in areas such as Afghanistan and some uh, Central Asian republics. So as far as uh, the policy toward China uh, goes, and it's quite a big statement because uh, ETIM was uh, initially sanctioned and declared a terrorist by through various United Nations Security Council resolutions in 2002 and uh, it was then administration of uh, uh, George Bush Jr. that had decided to include them in the um, Treasury Department sanctions and officially the US also being one of the global superpower it uh, declared them and viewed them as such. But now um, do you think that this uh, current administration uh, the State Department under Pompeo, uh, I won't comment on the Department of Defense, uh, that's a separate domain. But Pompeo's policies have been extremely aggressive towards China, directly targeting the CCP leadership. So uh, keeping the Defense Department aspect aside, if we only talk about the foreign policy angle, do you think that the um, deliberate uh, targeting of uh, China and especially this particular aspect of going against the UN itself and the world community in uh, actually having a soft corner for ETIM. Do you think that is something that could be reversed or is that um, that's going to take a lot of paperwork to reverse that decision? Or will they actually consider doing that? We have to ask this question from ourselves uh, that uh, what uh, the Trump administration has been doing uh, in its dealing with China. Is this, uh, has this, uh, uh, is this uh, what, the, what they have, what they have strategized and what they have acted upon? Is this thing working? 
quite frankly, I don't think that uh, it is working as robustly as it is being claimed. Uh, yes, there have been certain developments that have been, uh, as you have mentioned, this uh, delisting of ETIM. But uh, uh, under Biden's administration, I think that there would be uh, there would be a rethink of. Uh, they, I am I'm pretty sure that they are taking stock of what uh, the current administration is doing, and they would they would they would have to mend their ways. Uh, in their, uh, uh, if they want to, if they want to be, if they want to be a part of the great power competition that is happening, uh, as an uh, as an effective part of this great power competition that is happening in Asia uh, and in the larger Asia Pacific region. So, uh, I I think that. Uh, uh, as I have said, that this strategy is not working. That is, it is this my my, my assessment is backed by uh, this uh, paper that was recently published by uh, Rand Corporation and another uh, recent publication uh, of East West Center. And if you look at if you see how uh, the, uh, the the countries Southeast Asia. Uh, the, 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 the regional response towards uh, the US-China uh, great power competition, if you look at the response, you, you could see that there is this uh, variance, there is this... Uh, yes. There is clearly the, 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 these countries are disenfranchised. Yes, there are certain countries, for example, in Vietnam, we are seeing this certain uh, tilt in Singapore, we are seeing certain tilt. But you look at countries like Malaysia, you look at Indonesia, you look at Thailand. Uh, there is there they 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 clearly see no incentive in being a part of this uh, rivalry in supporting one party and uh, by one party that means United States. Uh, they don't they don't want to. Uh, be a part of this geopolitical uh, competition. They just want to focus on their economy. They just want to focus on uh, uh, this. Uh, they 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 want to they do, they want to deal with the pandemic. They want to focus on their economies, and they don't. They are not looking at anything. In fact, uh, I I don't want to go into that. I don't want. To, I don't. I won't take much time. Uh, so, so that we can move to other uh, discussion. But you go through that report and you look at how uh, in the, the, the assessment that has been made uh, when, when these researchers at East West Center, uh, they, uh, they uh, try to gauge uh, Indonesia's response towards, uh, they try to gauge Indonesia's response towards uh, this uh, uh, geopolitical rivalry, and you look at the response, and you realize, uh, okay, so you realize that, that there is that there is something there is something really wrong with. Let's let's go through the response because uh, hold on. I remember one thing. I remember coming across this recent statement uh, a few weeks ago. I think two weeks ago by Indonesia's uh, naval chief. 
and uh, remarking at a conference uh, he uh, categorically said without taking any names that this uh, uh, power competition going on uh, is something which is uh, regretted and he continuously stressed that uh, participants will have to ensure that uh, the centrality of ASEAN is ensured. Uh, he very much stressed and he expressed his concerns that that is something which I think he was trying to say that uh, the great powers were, you know, not uh, being mindful of the, that factor. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, the the response that has been given, the assessment that has been made on uh, with with regards to the Indonesian government, uh, they have clearly written Jakarta seems to count on China as the more important economic partner, even even as it confirms. China's aggressiveness in the Natuna Sea in areas claimed by and that are part of Indonesia's exclusive economic zone. So, despite despite the uh, contestation uh, of uh, the contestation with regards to uh, the seas that is going on, uh, there is still this realization that uh, economically we are interdependent on China. And uh, uh, and there is clearly written that they are focused on addressing the pandemic and economic recovery. They don't want to uh, deal with and another most most interesting thing. So in this assessment, that there is written that the relations between the United States and Indonesia in the last two decades have been framed by the so-called comprehensive strategic partnership. However. A takeoff in commercial and security relations has yet to materialize. So nothing mm. has happened in the past twenty years. So they they are not uh, they, they if being being a, being a shrewd uh, uh, player in international politics. They won't want to uh, hedge uh, in something that is uh, uh, they would they wouldn't want to favor something that is detrimental to their core interest. This is just what I discussed about Indonesia. You go through the responses of other countries and you see that there is a similar pattern. So, if you, even if they are trying to aggressively, if, even if the US is trying to aggressively push this agenda of Indo Pacific, Indo Pacific, Indo Pacific, I the rhetoric basically, the rhetoric, it won't, uh, this uh, rhetoric is not geared up to much, not going to yield any dividends. It's not going to yield any dividends. It is not going to match up the reality, the ground realities. Indeed, indeed. Well, that was uh, very interesting. That's uh, the roundup you have presented. So I think uh, I, for one, have uh, gotten to understand the crux of uh, what those, uh, what we can expect in the foreseeable future from the uh, state and uh, defense departments, because that's what uh, we are particularly concerned with from a national security point of view. I'd like to uh, discuss now um, one of the, my most uh, intriguing topics which I have been studying over the past uh, week or so. Uh, Russia's desire to establish a naval logistics base in Sudan. Now, uh, mm -hmm. I think uh, in the previous or the episode before that we discussed I think it was episode two or three, uh, episode three, if I remember, we discussed the developments in the Horn of Africa and we were discussing it from a very uh, multinational angle, especially the role of Turkey and the UAE. But here we have uh, Russia out, you know, the, the great bear, uh, the Eurasian uh, power 
uh, finally uh, setting up its uh, presence in the indian ocean region i think that was something which was long overdue irrespective of the fact that whether everyone in the region will be pleased or not that's a different debate altogether but the fact that russia has finally decided to come uh, so i'll first be discussing the salience of uh, this particular base uh, which is going to be constructed and then i'll present a historical context as to how this thing came about basically uh, we have been focusing too much on um, the western indian ocean but i think that uh, for some people they might consider this to be too abrupt and unexpected the russia's entry into uh, indian ocean waters so the first thing is that uh, russia has insisted uh, a draft of this agreement with sudan it is actually available for reading in the russian language on uh, the russian government websites you can read the document now my russian is very poor so apart from one or two basic words i had to rely on google translate and a few commentaries to understand the gist of it because people who are generally posting news reports they tend to be unreliable so i had to read the contents of the draft myself to try to understand as best as i could what it actually uh, portends um so basically the po- uh, the base which russia wants to construct russia insists that it is not a military base but rather a naval logistics facility now you know i i get quite wary of these uh, misnomers and attempts to hide the actual purpose of uh, what those establishments are supposed to be i mean obviously when you are having a logistics setup over there you are having troops stationed over there that is what actually makes a base i mean what else is a base so whether it, or not it's intended for an uh, offensive combat capability or it's just for defensive purposes or replenishment in this case uh, according to what we know it is meant for replenishment of uh, naval forces so that gives it a defensive orientation but the interesting thing is that uh, it is situated in port sudan once again uh, as in the previous episode when i was discussing the horn of africa you remember uh, we discussed the new irgc base in sirik i mentioned the distance because uh, the distance between key cities is important the centers of political power so this uh, port where russia intends to set up its base and it will is situated if you look at google maps port sudan is directly opposite makkah and jeddah it's directly opposite i mean if you open the map and if you just point a straight line from port sudan it will go toward makkah the holy site of muslims so no relation over here but the fact that the distance between jeddah and port sudan is just 310 kilometers or something it's barely 330 kilometers so we are talking about a short distance in the red sea so a russian presence directly opposite the key port city of saudi arabia and obviously the religious site of muslim so that's the geographic aspect the draft agreement uh, was released on 11 november and it says that uh, russia will have access to the land for 25 years and that's not a long time because uh, all of china's agreements and some other countries including turkey just to give you an example uh, turkey has also leased a sudani island by the name of uh, suwalin 
uh, it is in the middle of the Red Sea and Turkey has leased it for 99 years. We know that China has leased Hamad Tota port in Sri Lanka for 99 years and so 25 years is not that big a deal when you talk about uh, you know port agreements and establishing bases overseas. Especially not if you consider that uh, Djibouti is nearby, American forces, uh, French forces, Chinese forces, Japanese forces, their agreements go much longer. So this is 25 years. They say that after um, every 10 years, you can uh, consider a renewal. So it can go on. So at least for a quarter of a century, you can definitely expect Russian presence. So the agreement states that uh, Russia will be allowed to uh, dock at least a minimum of four ships at a time. Uh, I'm sorry, not minimum, but maximum. No more than four ships at a time. It could be a destroyer. It could be a frigate. It could be a patrol boat. It could be a submarine, including nuclear powered ships. But no more than 300 personnel are allowed to be in that base. So this is uh, 100 or 200 personnel less than uh, the presence of American forces in Camp Limonia, Djibouti. So Russia will not have that much of a true presence as compared to neighboring Djibouti, where uh, the US has its presence, along with China, France, India, Italy, Japan. Okay, so some of the salients are that Russia will have the right to import and export any weapons, ammunition and equipment necessary, quote-unquote, for the operation of the base and performance of tasks by warships. What could be the tasks by warships? So, obviously, warships are not supposed to be there for just replenishment. What do you mean by tasks? I think that a vague wording itself, you know, how law goes, you can interpret it, the, the language is set a bit loose, so you can uh, maneuver it and exploit it the way you want to. And then it says that, interestingly, the Sudani government has made it clear that by signing this document, Russia has assured that protection of the borders of water area and its air defense will be up to Russia. So basically, the Sudani government has itself of its own choosing absorbed of any responsibilities and handed over Russia to take care of its own security in the area. Air defense, obviously, you can expect air defense batteries to be installed over there. Indeed, and, quite, uh, an interesting, quite an interesting choice of words. Indeed. And um, the other thing is, which caught my attention is that uh, not only has Sudan given it away, uh, they have kept some quid pro quo for themselves. And they say that um, should the need arise for the Sudani government, the Russian side quote-unquote, can assist in the organization and implementation of underwater counter-sabotage support in the territorial waters of Sudan, participate in search and rescue operations, help provide air defense for local naval forces, which means Sudani naval forces, and strengthen capabilities of Sudanese armed forces, unquote. So basically, uh, I think as far as bargaining goes, the Sudani government has not just uh, completely handed over its uh, land and territory to Russia as uh, the Sri Lankans did by signing the Status of Forces Agreement with America. They've actually ensured that uh, if they are themselves at risk uh, as far as the land and naval territory is concerned, then Russia will be there to help them. I think uh, as far as the bargaining point of view goes, it's a good agreement. And just to uh, inform the people who might not be aware, Russia already has a naval base in Tartus, Syria, which is nearby. 
so if you just go almost 1000 kilometers to the north of port of sudan there is the tartus port and in between we have turkey and israel and then you have uh, egypt and the suez canal so basically you have a turkish presence in the mediterranean and now this presence in the red sea so when we talk about the links so on both sides of suez canal on both sides of uh, the the link actually between mediterranean and uh, indian ocean russia has kept its foothold over there and uh, in one of my next topics for discussion in this episode i will tell you how this is connected to something else also coming back to this uh, particular development so um, just to let the audience know that why sudan uh, the context of it is that uh, the previous sudani leadership under omar al bashir who was you know many people proclaim that he is a dictator and he was ousted he was deposed um, he was uh, fiercely opposed to us intervention in the region and he tried his best to stop the secession of uh, sudan into so- uh, north and south sudan and uh, what happens was that uh, these agreements the initial discussions for this development which has which is coming to materialize in this year and the next took place during omar al bashir's rule and he was very close to moscow as far as geopolitical proximity is concerned and uh, uh, convergence of interests russia had actually initially tried to set its foothold in djibouti just like all the other countries we have repeatedly mentioned in our episodes japan italy france china and uh, the us already in djibouti so russia was actually eyeing djibouti as well and uh, from 2012 to 14 negotiations were held between uh, russia and djibouti uh, for a facility however Uh, what happened was that the government of djibouti at the time they gave a very inconvenient and um quote and quote uncomfortable place for the russians uh, in a place which was uh, quite barren and it was not uh, conducive for their uh, uh, operational interests and so what happened was that um, after a gap of a few years in november 2017 uh, the former sudani ruler omar bashir he visited moscow and he held a mutin uh, meeting with putin president vladimir putin of russia and he pitched the him the idea of port of sudan the one which has taken place now in 2017 it was he who offered port of sudan, port sudan in on a plate to putin and quote and quote the words which he used to describe this place is moscow's key to africa this is what he was quoted as saying and uh, now this is something which uh, is important uh, the russian ambassador to so this was in 2017 the end next year in 2018 the russian ambassador to sudan uh, vladimir giltov he said that his country was discussing the establishment of this uh, center and he clarified repeatedly to the press that was in attendance at the russian embassy he said that i would like to assure you that it is not a military base it is going to be a naval logistics supply center again uh, an interesting mix, uh, play of words going on over there so all this process basically started from 2017 as far as eyeing sudan is concerned but what we do know that overall if we look at russia's intent to enter into africa they were interested since 2012 so we are talking 8 years ago almost so 
the reason why omar bashir offered port sudan on a plate to putin is again quid pro quo you see the um, history is showing that the sudanese are good in bargaining with regional powers and what did omar bashir want in return he wanted to purchase sukhoi 30 jets and sukhoi 35 jets including s300 air defense systems he wanted to completely shift his uh, country's military forces on russian platforms so that they are in a position in which uh, they could not be compromised by uh, the americans or uh, other uh, actors now this is something which uh, i am going to share some important observations by uh, in think tanks based in the west to understand their perspective on this the warsaw institute which is based in poland it notes that quote a russian base located only 300 kilometers from jeddah would be considered by saudi arabia as a threat to its security as well as to the security of oil and gas supplies from the persian gulf to europe so basically according to the warsaw institute port sudan the russian presence over there is going to be perceived as a threat by saudi arabia and rightfully so but then we also have the economist a renowned publication writing in october 2018 i quote russia's new interest in the central african republics is indicative of its willingness to increase its influence on the african continent and to counterbalance the influence of traditional powers such as the us uk and france russia also provides a counterbalance to chinese influence which has increased in recent years owing to china's large scale infrastructure belt and road initiative unquote and so this is the economist commenting but let me just repeat the timeline which i mentioned so 2017 in november omar bashir visits moscow he offers port sudan on a plate june 2018 russia's ambassador in sudan acknowledges their interest and claims that it is going to be a naval logistics supply center so a few months later in august 2018 now this is interesting these are some uh, different facts which i have uh, compiled into one just to inform you of how entrenched russia is going to be in this uh, particular area uh, russia signed an agreement for a russian industrial zone and nuclear power plant in egypt august 2018 so this is just two or three months after expressing their interest in sudan now just to let the audience know egypt borders sudan so there you have it if you're talking about the geographical point of view so to the north of sudan you have egypt russia is uh, ha- has established its industrial zone in egypt and a nuclear power plant so you have those strong interests over there your stakes over there not just the political or security but also economic stakes number 1 number 2 now there this is a country which is to the east of sudan which is eritrea it is a small country eritrea and uae has a strong influence over there we discussed it in the previous episode uh, russia has also in august 2018 the same month set up a uh, uh, signed an agreement for a logistics base in eritrea so basically egypt sudan eritrea the three main countries in the red sea now sudan and eritrea come in the horn of africa egypt is not egypt is in the suez canal but 
it just goes to show you that from the tip of tartus in syria along the shores of israel toward egypt and coming till eritrea at least at least you have a strong russian military presence now let me just uh, get out of the portion of salience and let's now discuss why russia is going to have a conducive environment in africa well um, russia has been quite an anomalous player as far as uh, power competition in africa and the western indian ocean goes you, we all know that uh, india and uh, the us and its allies have uh, common interests in the region we know that china is following its own path with african countries russia interestingly russia has complete uh, synchronicity with uh, the egyptian military and uh, the egyptians have recently uh, been acquiring a lot of defense hardware from russia and uh, engaged in technical cooperation including intelligence cooperation so um, i think the russians have played it very safe and uh, i think it goes to their benefit that they did not uh, agree to a, a timid base in djibouti because the sort of access which sudan is going to give definitely it is going to irk saudi arabia but if we look at it in the current developments it was a long time ago when there were some issues going on many many years ago between um, when it, the muslim brotherhood was in power in egypt and saudi arabia was irked by its presence over there since uh, president sisi assumed power he came uh, and assumed his autocracy over there uh, he is basically uh, a like minded uh, strategic ally not just of saudi arabia but also all the major gcc countries including israel and their common interest is going against turkey now i think that the russians now that they have kept themselves as a standalone actor in sudan i haven't come across any other actor except turkey but turkey is uh, has taken control of a small island in sudan for economic purposes nothing to do with the security purposes so that is going to uh create a very very complex um portpuri of um, these regional power actors that have suddenly decided that okay the pacific might be a theater but you know the interesting thing is that everybody seems to be coming toward the red sea and the horn of africa all of a sudden because uh, i think very few people realize that um it is not just the pacific theater or the uh, uh atlantic theater it is now uh, we are seeing i mean obviously uh, various developments come into play the mediterranean and the indian ocean is getting deeply interconnected with time if you remember um one of my recent perspective papers in which i discussed uh, east africa and i mentioned in it that the chinese had already when they were you know laying the groundwork for bri and maritime silk route the chinese had already foreseen that the key routes to global trade and uh, geostrategic importance is from indian ocean east africa till mediterranean that ocean belt over there and the fact that russia is going to be right next to djibouti also and you can just imagine the sort of panic going on in uh, american military circles over there so what what are we going to witness well for a matter of fact right now the situation is that russian interests aside 
we can debate about russia's own interests as far as we want russia is also entering into good engagements with the uae and uh, interestingly uh, the uae uh, uh, leader of the uae he inaugurated uh, two important uh, military facilities in egypt uh, several months ago earlier this year the port berenice and there was another base i forget the name so sisi had specially invited him so if you look at the alliance going on over there the geopolitical alliance egypt israel saudi arabia yemen um now we have uh, sudan because sudan uh, again sudan has uh, normalized its relations with israel so the russians at least know that now the regime over there is not going to be hostile towards that mediterranean country and that is uh, and recently we read this news of a uh, uh, israel's uh, intelligence chief and uh, the prime minister visiting a particular arab country i won't mention the name over here if you look at these things in context the maritime aspect of it i uh, am just going to uh, try to understand why uh russia now it decided that it wants to come into this arena and the fact of the matter remains that this is a confirmation that the mediterranean supply route connecting the red sea has now formally been uh, acknowledged as the the uh, flashpoint of contestation between these regional players up until now we were talking about some basic exercises going on the china just just uh, all these countries having just a uh, basic basis for supply and etc you see the question remains a pertinent question so russia already had uh, its is comprehensive and base and infrastructure in tartus it practically controls the entire and influences the entire syrian military if why does it need another presence uh, close to the red sea i mean tartus is not that far away from the red sea it is very easy for their uh, surface vessels to come for replenishment and from uh, those over here to go when passing over there but why set up another one i think that uh, there are more questions than answers and this uh, actually indicates the shift and this has actually raised the temperature to a considerable notch and uh, one of the last points which i am going to mention over here is the fact that uh, if this agreement is to be believed in letter and spirit what we are going to see is that uh, russia will also ensure that its base is secure from um, i mean okay we could talk about the husi presence in yemen so it's basically near to the south of uh, saudi arabia what will the iranians be doing now because the husis have been consistently trying to target rocket attacks towards saudi arabia now that russia is also involved in the picture and the air defense aspect of the whole region is going to be uh, a complex um, uh, mashup going on over there how will the iranians react and how will iran react to this whole thing will iran be allowed to replenish its naval vessels in this russian base in sudan number 1 so that is also a question i am sure this is something which the saudis and egypt but particularly the saudis will be wondering will russia allow irgc or iranian navy vessels 
to come and replenish in the sudani base if yes then that is going to spark a lot of conflict if not then uh, it would uh, indicate otherwise that russia is operating independently in the indian ocean and it does not need any allies i think the fact of the matter that russia out of all countries it has exceptional strategic relations with iran it did not consider setting up any base in iran and for the matter of fact you see if we talk in military terms chabahar is basically not a military base but russia had that option to set up a facility over there or near there with india and iran but it chose sudan out of all places so that also indicates that it is not yet ready to rely on any literal country in the indian ocean for its interests and it would rather prefer to have a setup directly in the red sea but away from the main horn of africa so that um, it can have direct access to the uh, mediterranean region as and when it wants now if you have a rear um, uh, beachhead in tartus and you have a presence in sudan till eritrea now again eritrea also i think this just goes to show that russia has played its cards well as for, so i am uh, particularly i am impressed that the russians have indeed played their cards very well over here it is always uh, a pleasure to uh, learn from your uh, astute uh, insights into what's happening in africa uh, since you have uh, you dedicated a lot of time looking at what's happening in the region uh, and uh, figuring out the broader trends that are uh, happening so from uh, uh, we talked about uh, red sea mediterranean now we are moving towards the atlantic uh, so uh, let's discuss france germany and their relations with the united states so uh, in the past few days we have seen this uh, very widely uh, read piece uh, an interview given by emmanuel macron uh, french president to uh, a, a media portal known as the le grand out uh, le grand continent this this was quite an extensive interview and uh, it has uh, uh, created a buzz uh, in germany and uh, so uh, there is this uh, uh, german defense minister uh, annegret uh, kram uh, karen bauer so uh, she is she also uh, she had also gone on the offensive uh once uh, this uh, interview of uh, was released so uh, she actually wrote an opinion piece uh, and uh, uh, macron responded to uh, that piece in his interview the issue is uh, related to european defense capabilities and of uh, european defense uh, european dependence on the united states so in in an op-ed that was previously written uh kalmbor uh, uh, called uh, europe's strategic autonomy and illusion quote unquote uh okay uh, yes uh and uh, 
Macron uh, stated that he profoundly uh, disagreed, quote unquote, he profoundly disagreed with the opinion piece uh, written by the German Minister of Defense. Uh, and he considered it to be another, uh, quote, start point, historical misinterpretation, quote unquote. So uh, there is this discussion going on uh, about this. So Karen Bauer said that uh, the illusionary idea of uh, Europe's strategic autonomy must come to an end as uh, oh. Europe cannot replace America as a security guarantor. Uh, in her opinion, the idea of uh, European autonomy goes uh, too far if it feeds this illusion that uh, security, stability and prosperity can be guaranteed without, can be guaranteed in Europe without NATO and the United States. So, um, so uh, we know this that uh, Macron has always stressed that European defense is foremost. Uh, NATO comes second, US comes second. Uh, and uh, Macron has always stressed on uh, European autonomy uh, in its defense matters. Uh, France. The Europe France, first policy. Yes. Uh, France wants to be prepared for the day when the United States is no longer able or willing to guarantee European security. Uh, but Germany, on the other hand, uh, it uh, wants to strengthen the European pillar of NATO to mm. convince the US to maintain its presence in Europe. Uh, although they Although both Germany and France agrees that Europe should do more, but for Macron, Europe should do more independently and it shouldn't rely on the United States. But uh, for Germany, Europe should do more to strengthen itself and create, a, a, create uh, an incentive uh, for, for the United States to maintain its presence in Europe. So you're you, uh, both, both basically what you're them. trying to say, uh, can you just clarify for my knowledge, because this is quite interesting, the comparisons you've drawn. Are you saying that basically the security architecture, which uh, France prefers is Eurocentric and European led, whereas Germany wants uh, a reliance on the transatlantic structure, which is in place through NATO. That's what you're saying. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, there is this uh, suspicion in Berlin that uh, uh, Macron wants to weaken NATO. Oh. Uh, yes, and it's a very dangerous suspicion. Uh, and it is also possible that uh, what this Gulab uh, blue that happened uh, uh, with regards to what Macron said, what German Defense Minister Karen Bauer said, it is, it is also possible that uh, uh, 
Germany, uh, especially Karen Bauer, through her opinion piece, has uh, conveyed to the Americans that Germany needs them and value their help. Also, uh, in the German Ministry of Defense, there seems to be concern that some elements of the German political opposition are a bit too enthusiastic about the idea of European autonomy. Not and not because they want to bolster the European defense efforts, rather it is uh, precisely the extreme misinterpretation of European autonomy uh, without the United States that is attractive to them. Okay. Uh, and I was uh, going through this uh, this uh, uh, this survey today. Uh, there were, there were these, uh, th these two surveys that uh, I've gone through in which uh, there is this, uh, this uh, survey was done amongst the German population and 51% of the German populace considers, echoes the same sentiment as, uh, as the French president. Okay. Yes. 51% of the respondents echoed the same uh, uh, opinion. Have they, the, have they tried to mention what could be the reasons for this uh, preference? Uh, no. I'll have to go through the complete report. Uh, I think it was published. I, if I'm just to, because uh, several, uh, many, many episodes ago when uh, PGR podcast was limited to audio only on Anchor, I covered this aspect that. Uh, the German parliament has been uh, fighting viciously about troop, uh, extending troop deployments in Afghanistan. And I think that the terrible experience with NATO in Afghanistan, this is not just the definitive opinion, but one of the main factors, which I've been reading over the past six months, as far as uh, German military goes, that the Germans uh, at that time also, there was a survey, the Germans were considerably upset and they were fed up of uh, the lack of uh, response and support they were receiving from NATO, including funds from the US. And uh, that had actually uh, influenced the Bundestag, the German parliament, to factor in before deciding on troop deployment. Obviously, uh, Merkel did go ahead and try to influence it in favor. But I think, uh, I think that is one of the factors which needs to be kept. I mean, practically speaking, the German experience uh, with uh, NATO and these uh, allies, it hasn't been that conducive on ground, has it? Uh, no, uh, precisely. That is one reason uh, that you have uh, given here. There are two other. Uh, in fact, there is one another important reason. See, in a piece, Karen Bauer also warned about the rising anti-American sentiment in the German public, uh, and she. Uh, she has cautioned uh, about it that this thing is happening and uh, this thing would further inflame if the, these kind of discussions would come to the fore. Uh, also, we uh, we know this that the Germans have uh, have been, have a very strong opinion on uh, nuclear weapons. They reject they they reject nuclear weapons. So uh, uh, this can also be one of the reasons of uh, 
why Germans are uh, not favoring the Americans. And if you look at uh, if you look at it from the German government's uh, point of view, so uh, they are concerned about it because they, if uh, if Germany ends up uh, losing support of uh, its transatlantic partner, the United States, uh, it would lose the nuclear umbrella, and uh, there and uh, there is there are there is no uh, there are no European communities that uh, that uh, Russia shall, yes Russia being a main factor yes exactly. There, there is no replacement of that. So, and uh, Karen Ball, at another point of time, she gave the speech and she talked about the cost of strategic autonomy. Uh, if there is this complete detachment from the United States, it would be disproportionately higher uh, than the 2% to GDP that uh, the Germans contribute to the transatlantic alliance the cost of maintaining uh, defense on our own it would be uh, higher than the two percent that they contribute to uh, definitely nato uh, france perhaps doesn't care about it as much because france already is a nuclear power they have this nuclear deterrent that the germans don't have and germans have to rely on the americans so you can see this uh, uh, this interesting divergence on uh, this uh, question of strategic autonomy, these debates going on uh, in Europe about uh, how dependent we should be on the United States. Uh, so I think that, uh, but uh, but uh, I wanted to ask you related to this. Uh, does that explain why uh, countries such as France and now even Germany have decided they have to act on their own in the Indo-Pacific theater, what they call the Indo-Pacific? I mean, they're not joining the, that's something to note, they're not joining the US-led alliance or uh, they're going completely independent over there and acting autonomously. So ultimately, I think in the long run, if these two European strong countries with the strong militaries they are venturing overseas beyond the European territory into uh, an extra regional theater and acting of their own accord does not also that does that also not speak volumes about uh, their long term vision for uh, limited cooperation with the US? Um, yes, uh, that 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 is that is one angle, but uh, that is one angle. Additionally, if you look. Uh, I don't I, in in the Biden administration. I think this uh, cooperation. Uh, France can uh, Emmanuel Macron can go on claiming whatever you want, but uh, the transatlantic alliance is not uh, cannot uh, uh, cannot uh, the, the politics around the transatlantic alliance cannot dissipate so easily. Okay. Indeed, it would it would further further strengthen. Uh, that is my opinion. I am sorry to speculate, but uh, 
before uh, i continue i will begin my next topic i just like to add that uh, you see germany has uh, more reasons than france to be concerned about uh, retaining uh, uh and the fact of that matter is that uh, germany is home to many of uh, nato installations and us overseas bases as compared to france so they have the sort of integration which the us military and influence which it has on the german uh, politic and society in general is uh, starkly different than that of france you don't see that in france as much as you see in germany also so yes there are a lot of considerations on that point as well so uh, speaking of europe i think uh, we move from africa to europe i am also going to talk of europe this is going to be my last topic for this episode uh, i came across this news that uh, the us army europe i repeat myself not us european command that is the entire combatant command i'm talking about just us army component in europe it has formally consolidated itself with us army africa so basically and uh, the uh, european command and african command already had consolidated air and naval forces so us naval forces africa and europe were already integrated at the service level same goes for the navy it is just now in 2020 that the land forces component has also been integrated i fail to understand why um, they have not uh, combined the commands itself the theaters i think they want to retain that sort of a strategic uh, distinction between the two european command eu com to remain different from africa command africom but now the interesting thing is that the consolidation of us army europe and africa has been renamed to us army europe and africa which is usareur-af usareur-af and um, basically us army africa the southern european task force is redesignated as us army southern european task force africa so before i continue any further i'm just trying to point out the fact that as far as the geostrategic posturing of us military is concerned the land forces they now consider europe and africa to be part of the same theater this is very important very important and the two star general in charge of uh, erstwhile us army africa he will now serve as the deputy commanding general for the new consolidated command so basically he was only looking after the african task force now he will serve as a deputy on the forum which will look into africa and europe combined which makes sense as far as structuralism is concerned now th there is an interesting statement by uh, the secretary of us army mr ryan mccarthy he said that this integration between european and african army commands will quote play a vital role in supporting missions across two interconnected theaters of operation unquote i think the key takeaway from that statement is interconnected theaters of operation mm. you see the interesting thing is now that uh, now uh, i'm i'd like to remind uh, the viewers about the previous topic which i discussed russian presence in the red sea and the mediterranean so now we all know that russia and china are the two most top priority strategic threats for the us according to their annual assessments and uh, state department reports etc 
so uh, can you see i'm just trying to point out this is what i believe that obviously the russian materialization of presence in africa did not take a few months it is the culmination of several years same goes for the us so now russia has ensured russia does not have that sort of a theater command difference it's basically functioning in the mediterranean as it considers the entire region its uh, southern fleet and the uh, european fleet now uh, the us is going to completely encapsulate the mediterranean and african shores into its fold so basically from atlantic ocean till the western indian ocean you will have the land forces having autonomy to traverse about in the region to protect their interests with greater integration as compared to the um, uh, the bureaucratic paperwork which had divided the african component between the european component so now that operational synergy that integration of resources the removal of duplication i think that amalgamation is going to play extremely efficiently for us interest just to let the audience know the us africa command is not based on africa at all it has no african presence and it is actually based the us army europe is based in wiesbaden germany it's based in germany okay us army europe so i don't see the headquarters changing at least for a few years so that presence in germany is now even more important and uh, the us army africa headquarters was uh, based until recently in vincenza italy so um, now the german and italian headquarters are going to be integrated where that hasn't been uh, discussed yet that hasn't been provided yet there is a scarce information about that so uh, what uh, we have come to know is that um, just to let the audience know about the scope so now we have to understand how big is this theater command how big is european command how big is africa command let's begin with european command the eu com covers 51 countries including europe russia and israel now these are some of the prominent countries which i have selected so european command as a whole army navy air force covers 51 countries including russia and israel and europe okay and it its mandate extends to the shore of africa so until before this integration us army europe could not operate beyond the shores of north africa it could not enter into the african mainland that was exclusively for us army africa and africa command africom covers 53 countries essentially the entire africa except egypt because egypt is the only african country which is not part of africom it comes under central command centcom pakistan is also a part of centcom so now what will happen is the us army europe's domain just imagine i think this is this has to be one of the largest integrations and command operational areas ever as far mm -hmm. as europe uh, us military is concerned so the us army europe and africa integrated will not only deal with africa it will also deal now with russia israel europe just imagine the sort of disparate politics in play 
and the sort of disparate security architectures being combined together yes i think uh, just imagine going from all the way from and you know greenland is also part of european command so we begin with greenland and we end at south africa just imagine the scope and scale of this area of operations for the us army and uh, see and uh, these two the, this, these two, uh, dif- these two different theater of operations are now uh, single I've, i've now been merged together exactly and uh, i think uh, the last thing which i would like to point out is that uh, there were some people who were saying well if the navy and air force were already integrated at their own service levels and the army is now being integrated why not just combine the whole theaters together so there was some resistance on this by the us house armed services committee chairman mr adam smith he opposed the consolidation of the entire theaters so uh, i personally uh, i can understand the technicalities of this because if you integrate the entire commands combatant commands that will send a very wrong signals so what they've done is that at the higher headquarter level headquarter africa command and headquarter european command they have ensured that their dealings with african countries and europe russia etc will remain separate as far as the higher headquarters are concerned but as far as operational and tactical level um, dealings are concerned there will be integration so as far as the high level politics and interaction is concerned i think there is not going to be any difference and this very clearly shows that if the theaters are not integrated but only their specific sub components their uh, army navy and air force because uh, uh, just uh, to let you know the when we talk about european command and not just army europe we are talking about civilian subject matter experts who are proficient in the uh, regional customs traditions politics and uh, security considerations apprehensions among the local populace in those target areas so i think uh, what america has done is they have tried to retain that sort of a distinction between europe and russia on the one end and uh, the entire african continent on the other but i think to save up their resources or to try to make up for their uh, absence on the african continent to send a message to china and russia perhaps especially china this should be a message to china basically that uh, as far as the operational forces are concerned they will have the option to fly from europe and even operate till the shores of south africa if need be they couldn't do that before and africom has a very limited presence in africa they are involved in very few counter terrorism missions against uh, terrorist organizations al qaeda and this and that and trying to train local uh, uh, african countries to strengthen their military forces respective forces so uh, i think this is something now again uh, we talked about uh, russia entering trying to consolidate indian ocean with the mediterranean we are seeing the same with the, the us now uh, before we close this session zaki i would like to take on uh, this uh, this uh, point that you have made with regards to the distinction on uh, between these two commands on the strategic level but on the operational and tactical level there would be integration so my my uh, 
question is, or what I am puzzled about is, uh, how would they create synergy on the operational and tactical level? Because you know, the, when we when we go through this subject of jointness and we study jointness, you get this uh, distinct uh, sense that jointness on the strategic level is easier as compared to how the jointness, how that jointness would translate on the lower levels. So these two different commands, uh, how they would deal with, uh, how they would synergize their efforts on uh, the operational and technical level. This is something that is, uh, that, that uh, I, I want your uh, comment on. Well, uh, again, to reiterate that, uh, you see, the entire theater command comprises of various elements. They have political elements, they have subject matter experts, civilians who are consultants to the general officer who leads the combatant command in the area. And uh, then you have army commands, you have intelligence uh, components, you have the air force, the navy, and there are multiple components. So if we just, if I can just restrict myself to the military domain components, Army, Navy, Air Force, the integration at from strategic till tactical level has already been there for Navy and Air Forces. Just to give you an example. Oh yes, oh yes, okay. That has already been there. So they have that sufficient experience that uh, the Camp Limoni in Djibouti, there are elements of US Army and U.S. Navy also already uh, working over there. The issue was that U.S. Army uh, and again, uh, U.S. Army's your, uh, U.S. Army Africa's headquarters also was the entire Africom setup itself has already been based in Europe. So the reason they are based in Europe is because that is the beachhead from where they thrust into North Africa as yes. and when need be. We saw that happening in Libya. If you remember when they wanted to depose uh, Muammar Gaddafi, the operation carried out in tandem with NATO, the aircraft came from Europe and they flew into North Africa. They crossed the Mediterranean. So that has they, already been there. They, they come from Italy. Uh, exactly. Mediterranean going to uh, Africa. Uh, this is what happened uh, in World War II. Uh, if you look at the past patterns. Uh, and, uh, to complement this, uh, perhaps we can have this uh, discussion on this development in some other session of the scheme of things. Uh, look at what's happening. Uh, the this uh, news of uh, U.S. first fleet. Uh, oh yes, uh, well that that turned out out to be a big embarrassment for the Americans and uh, the the MINDEF, the Ministry of Defense in Singapore, which is known to be very uh, extremely uh, cautious when uh, trying to communicate its concerns to the US. It very vociferously came out in time and uh, <laughs> refuted in clear unequivocal terms that that is not something that is going to happen, at least not without taking them into confidence. Just so that is supposed to show you, <laughs> just imagine, I mean, just imagine that a US official made this passing remark and even named the fleet. Just imagine. And you know, let's just forget the fact that they want to establish something. Singapore of all places. 
it is not even in the indian ocean for god's sake i mean if you place them in diego garcia that still makes sense it's a connect between the indian and pacific oceans but singapore of all places now the problem is very quickly singapore does not want to be involved beyond intelligence sharing with the us and five eyes countries uh, it has participated only once with the us and quad the malabar exercises in 2007 the first edition 2007 is the only year of uh, malabar exercises which took place twice otherwise it's just a one time event per year per annum and after that singapore never again took part in malabar because singapore has been very you know cautious about sending the wrong signals to china singapore does not want to uh, will never i i'm i'm not saying this with certainty but i'm saying this with a certain degree of confidence that uh, any us uh, presence in uh, fleet presence in singapore is out of the question and with that uh, before we wrap up this program i would just like to point out that um, i am going to write um, a very comprehensive perspective paper for cscr uh, my good friend talha has encouraged me to evolve it into a perspective paper it was going to be an article initially on malabar exercises it's going to be one of the most comprehensive analyses on this subject and i'm actually going to have a lot of surprises for the readers and the audience because um, there has been much hype and it all started with the indian media trying to portray it as the culmination of the quad experience and this and that but the statistics and the visuals which i will be incorporating in that paper to be published by cscr it will give you a very different picture from what is being portrayed something more objective to tone down the hype which is going on so thank you talha for giving your time and it has been quite a roller coaster episode this one in particular Hmm. Yeah, I had this. I had this thing going on where I received some comments from the Indians, um, the Indian listeners and the audience, which I appreciate. I have all the respects for the uh, Indian audience to our programs, and some of them ask me, "Oh, you are so obsessed with India." Well, the fact of the matter is, we didn't find anything noteworthy to include India in this particular episode, not because India is an insignificant country for Pakistan, but because. we select topics based on those which we find are most concerning as far as the larger geo strategic and uh, developments are concerned and it was quite refreshing that uh, for once we focused more on uh, europe and uh, africa as compared to the traditional indian ocean side so yes, tala once again thank you for your time yeah. yes uh, <laughs> uh, just for your audience uh, just for the audience that people from the audience our indian listeners who complain to you uh we had to discuss rcep as well today but uh, due to the paucity of time we decided to cut it short and call it a night yes definitely and uh, <laughs> uh, rcep will be uh, but i'm not going to leave it that will be discussed in the next episode and until then thank you for tuning in everybody allah hafiz allah hafiz